Father, we ask you for your Holy Spirit this morning. You tell us how much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. God, I know there's people in this room that just hear us praying to you as Father and asking for the Spirit, and it feels weird. But God, draw near to us and draw near to us in the Scriptures. We thank you for your Son, Jesus, and it is very clear that he will come to us clothed in the scriptures and these very words that we teach right now. So I pray that you would meet each one of us. Uh, you'd meet us as a church and you'd meet us as individuals. Speak to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So all of Redemption Church is working through the gospel of Mark. If you didn't know this, there's four gospels um, in the Bible written from individual vantage points. So there's the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. And we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, which Luke told you last week, many people say it's the Gospel of Peter, um, that likely, um, very, very likely, Mark's primary source of information was coming from this apostle that we've read in this text, the Apostle of Peter. So we come now into chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, and the title of the message today is The King's Community. The King's community, we are a local congregation here as Redemption Gateway that's a part of the larger, what the Bible would call, body of Christ, the church, which is the King's community. The church is the King's community, and the King is Jesus. If you ever walk into a church and you don't centrally hear the name of Jesus being brought forth to you over and over and over again, uh, I would submit to you that's not really a church. The one thing that distinguishes us from other faith traditions, the one thing that distinguishes us from other community organizations is how we center ourselves around Jesus, that we are a Jesus people. We are a Jesus community. And if you sit in this room and you would say, listen, I'm not even a Christian and this is the way you started off. Well, let me give you a quote from somebody as well who was not a Christian. One of the smartest men of all time, Albert Einstein, says this about the Gospels and about Jesus. Albert Einstein says this, As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud, which is a Jewish religious text. He said, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Look at those words, the luminous, the enlightening figure of the Nazarene. Jesus was from Nazareth. He's the Nazarene. He goes on. No one can read the Gospels, of which Mark is one, without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Jesus is too colossal, that means huge, for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can dispose of Christianity with a bon mot. Bon mot just means with the flip of a hand. Eh, I want nothing to do with it. He says, no man or woman, he means by that, can dispose of Christianity, just says, eh, whatever, because of Jesus. So I would submit to you today, even if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you can't flippantly just do away with Jesus. We've got to look at him and deal with him. Now, there's a pastor named Tim Keller 
who really speaks the sentiment that we desire as teachers of the gospel of the mark through the redemption congregations would come true for all of us, believer or unbeliever, when we look at Jesus. And he says this, I trust that you will find the figure of Jesus worthy of your attention, unpredictable yet reliable, gentle yet powerful, authoritative yet humble, human yet divine, I urge you, now I want to say this like it's coming from me, even though it's a quote from Tim Keller. I urge each one of you to seriously consider the significance of Christ's life in your own. Now Christians, you may say, oh, I've already seriously considered Jesus. We're saying to you, no, today, seriously consider the significance of his life in your own. So we're going to look today at this idea of the Jesus community, what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be the church. This is the very beginnings of the forming of what we now call the church when Jesus calls together these 12 apostles. And we're going to see this about the King's community, that it's a drawn community, drawn community, that it's a centered community, and that it's a sent community. That it's a drawn community, a centered community, and a sent community. So let's get after it. We are a drawn community. The King's community, Jesus' community, is a drawn community. There's a word for this idea of drawn, and it's a big word. I'm going to teach you a word today if you didn't know it. It's centripetal. The word centripetal means moving or tending to move toward a center. Now, many of you go, I've never heard that before, but if you're a country music fan, you go, yeah, Faith Hill used that word, centripetal. In this song, the way you love me, she says, it's the way you love me. It's a feeling like this. It's centripetal motion. It's perpetual bliss. Here's what she's saying. There's somebody I love that draws me to themselves. Centripetal. Now, if you're not a country music fan, um, I'll give one more shot. There are 300 kids sitting in the children's ministry. So there's a lot of families here. And if you are a parent or you've ever been a parent before, you get centripetal because when you have kids you are never ever again alone and I don't just mean you have people living in your house I mean wherever you are they go so I try to eat dinner and we'll sit down and we each have chairs but when we sit down for dinner uh, my seat's not my own my girls begin to sit in my lap my food's not my own they move towards me at every level you're never alone, not even in the bathroom. You go to the bathroom, are you in there? Boom, boom, boom. It's like, is there anywhere I can go where people aren't moving towards me? That's the idea of centripetal. And you'll see fundamentally that Jesus had a centripetal identity. We see it here, but even before here, even the people that Jesus had the most resistance from couldn't stay away from him. The religious leaders continued to go after him. And the hurting and the needy and the broken and the interested, the smart and those who weren't as smart, the beautiful and those that the society would have said were ugly. Everybody was coming to Jesus and we see that. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem 
and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. With the great crowd, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now look at how they come. They come to him from far and wide. That's what Mark's saying. And then look at how they come to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. They didn't just come and watch from afar. Oh, he's on that stage. Look, can you see him over there? And they weren't looking with binoculars. They were all going, we've got to get right next to him. He was so centripetal that people were moving towards him, not just in the vicinity of him, but they wanted to get close to him so much so that he even himself said, get a boat ready lest they crush me. Now, have you ever been in a crowd like that? Let's just start with a crowd of a lot of people. Use your imaginations for a moment because you cannot read any book that's good and not get yourself immersed in it. Well, the Bible's the same thing. I would really, really submit to you that when you read the Bible to try to place yourself in the text, feel the moment, smell the smells, hear the sounds. So let's just for a minute do that. There are this many people coming around Jesus who've walked miles and miles and hours and hours to come and see him. They're all around you. It feels like a New York City subway, but they're outside. So what does it smell like? They've walked this far, hours and hours. You definitely smell body odor. These people are coming, and they can't just be in the vicinity, but they've got to be near them. So what does it feel like? Lots of pressure. People are pressing against one another. People are pushing each other. It feels uncomfortable. It likely feels dangerous. That isn't a stretch. Jesus himself felt endangered. That's why he said, go get a boat over there lest they crush me that I may have to get in it and have a getaway. Well, if he felt like that, then the people that were pressing towards him were pressing into other people. So you smell the smells, you feel the pushes, you hear the sounds of people screaming. Why were they coming? Well, the text says they were coming like this because they had heard of what he had done. Well, what he's doing now is what he had done then, and he's healing people. He's delivering them. He's redeeming them. He's restoring bodies. So you probably hear cries and calls, like other men in the Gospels cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Heal me. You hear other people going, let me just get close enough to touch him, likely like the woman in the Gospel of John who'd been bleeding for 12 years who just touched the hem of his robe. Other people might just try to be getting in the shadow of him because we know in Acts chapter 5 that the power of Christ had come upon Peter and people just tried to lay the lame in the shadow of Peter and they were healed. These is real stuff, folks. You know this. I have two of my friends uh, who have children with cancer right now. And there is nowhere they would not fly their children. There's nowhere they wouldn't drive. There's no impediment to their schedule in which they wouldn't take their kids to get better. You know this personally. If you've ever experienced insomnia at any level, there's nothing you wouldn't do. People change their entire diets 
their entire life. They take pills, they go to doctors just so that they can be humanized again, so that they can sleep. You know what it is. You chase after all kinds of things to get these thoughts out of your head and peaceful thoughts into your head. People will drown themselves out in addictions to get relief, to just find a little bit of mercy. This is real, people. You know it now. There's places you go. There's things you go after. But these people were going after Jesus because they heard and some had seen what he had done. Jesus was centripetal. He drew people to himself because he met real needs. Just the day before yesterday, I was at um, one of my best friend's father-in-law's funeral. Six weeks ago, um, this man had a stomach ache, woke up, went in, and they found cancer all throughout his stomach. Said there's nothing we can do. Five weeks later, um, he passed away. And at this funeral, um, there's the opportunity for people who've been already selected to go to the stage, and there they uh, deliver uh, a memory or things that they want to say about this man. This man's name was Mark Doris. Well, when they went to the, the crowd, they kind of put the mics out in the crowd, one of his childhood best friends stood up and he said, this is going to be long. And he had three pages of paper, just like I have now. He stood up, they handed him a microphone, he looked down at his wife as he started, and as he started, his hands were just kind of tremoring, and you could see it. You could see the papers moving. And he began to talk about how much he and Mark had done when they grew up, and about his, how his family was basically another family of himself. And as he started to come to the end, the papers were just shaking and shaking. And at that point, I thought, I don't, this seems more than just nervous. And many times he kept looking at his wife. But he came to this point where he said this at the very end. He's on the third page, and then he looks at the casket, and he says to Mark, Mark, you're with Jesus now. Would you do me a favor now that you're there? And he said, will you say hello to my son? And then he said, we say hi to, hello to my parents. And if you can, see what you can do about diabetes and Parkinson's disease. So all of a sudden it made sense. The Parkinson's disease made sense of the large level of tremors that he had. He was appealing to a friend who had just died how much he missed his son, how much he missed his parents, how much he struggled with diabetes, how much he struggled with Parkinson's disease. These are real struggles, folks, that we face today, and we'd do anything to see our kids raised from the dead, to see our loved ones who've passed away, to do away with the mental or physical disorders, whether they're diabetes whether it's Parkinson's disease, whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety, whether it's the thoughts from an abusive past, whether it's a horrific marriage of today, we want deliverance and we want healing and these people came to Jesus because they were getting it. They were seeing it, they were tasting it and they were touching it. Jesus in himself drew people in many forms, in miraculous forms, and then in very relational forms. There's these moments where he's compassionate beyond compassion that we've seen any human be. He's provocative in ways that are provocative beyond belief. He was centripetal. He drew people to himself. And then when these people came to him, and if they got close enough, and if they experienced him enough, 
they understood that this community that was now forming was one that had been drawn by him, but now it was one that centered on him. The king's community is a drawn community, but it's also a centered community. And what is it centered around? Verse 10, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out. This was the moment Luke got loud when he was reading this passage. They cried out. The unclean spirits fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And then Jesus strictly orders the unclean spirits to shut their traps. Shut your mouth. He did not want them to make him known. Then he goes up on this mountain and he calls those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed the twelve whom he named to be apostles so they might be, hear this, with him. So this community is drawn, but now the community that forms is centered around him. So centripetal, this movement towards a center, like a moth to a flame, in that image, Jesus is the flame. He is the one whom everyone is being drawn to. The question then is, why? And the answer is, his identity. Not just what he did, but what he was doing was happening because of who he was. You're the son of God. The foundational component of who Christ was. The center point. As of late, the past couple years, um, my family has been experiencing some health changes, uh, challenges. So our diets are beginning to change for many of us. My son, Yale, who's here, has uh, what's called celiac disease. And so he can't have any gluten. It's an autoimmune uh, disease, which your body views wheat, barley, and rye as intruders and will not deal with it. And so he can't have that. So he's gone gluten-free. And we've also started to change our diet. And my wife is now on um, this thing that would generally be called raw vegan. Okay? That sounds appealing to nobody in this room. But it's raw vegan, and in the midst of it, when you're eating raw vegan, there's certain things you realize. One is how good whole foods actually taste, like how flavorful real fruit is and real vegetables. But the other thing is there are these things you miss, like ice cream. So she says to me the other day, hey, I found this amazing recipe for ice cream. And I'm like, well, you're eating like a raw vegan. You can't be eating ice cream. She says, no, what happens is you freeze bananas um, overnight, and then you take them and you put them in a blender and you may add some strawberries to it and you blend it up and when it comes out, uh, seriously, when you look at it, it looks like ice cream. She's like, try it, it tastes amazing. And so I tried it, I'm like, that's not bad, it tastes like bananas. But then my second thought was this, this is absolutely offensive to ice cream to call this ice cream. <laughs> this isn't ice cream, it's frozen fruit. There may be a different consistency to it, but this truly is offensive because there's something foundational central to ice cream, and it's called cream. <laughs> you don't have ice cream without cream. That's the foundation. That's the center point to it. Well, let me tell you something. You don't have what you see happening without a foundational, fundamental identity in a man. There's something about this man, Jesus Christ, that's different, that's revealed to us as the center point by the demons by the unclean spirits, and it's very clearly stated, 
You are the Son of God. Now, to us, that may not resonate as much as the Bible tells us. Even the Jews would have begun to understand the significance of the title Son of God. But this very scene, or a scene very similar like it, in Luke chapter 4, 41, will begin to walk us through how substantial this term really was. Now follow the argument through four passages of Scripture I'm going to bring you so you understand how fundamental the unclean spirit stating to Jesus about his own identity, you are the Son of God, listen to how significant this really is. Luke 4, 41, and demons also came out of many, crying, You are the son of God. But just like he did in Mark 3, he rebukes them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Look at the correlation. You're the son of God. What does he want him to be quiet about? That he's the Christ. Now, if you didn't know this, Christ is not Jesus' last name. My last, I'm Tyler Johnson. Christ is a title given to Jesus that means The way the Jews would say it is Messiah. The word Messiah means Savior, Deliverer. He was the Savior, the one who brought salvation. Now, how did the Jews understand salvation, the one who would bring salvation? How did they understand the one who would bring salvation? Well, let's look at the psalm, Psalm 3.8. Here's what the psalmist says, salvation belongs. What does the word belongs mean? It's the ownership of the Lord, which means the Savior is the Lord. The psalms are prayers. Who do we pray to? When people pray, we pray to who? God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the prayer, your blessing be on your people. The Savior is the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Who is the Lord? Well, now look at Psalm 62, 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. For from him, who's him? God comes my salvation. So the statement son of God is not just, oh, he's one related to God. He's one pretty close to God. They're saying he's God. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. Therefore, he's the Lord. Therefore, he's God. This is one of the things I would really recommend to you. If you ever want to truly understand Jesus, read the Gospels and feel his personality. Like Einstein said, it's pulsating in every word. Feel it. See his grace. See his compassion. See his love. See his power. But then also read the portions in the Bible that speak about him as he truly is, as the Lord of the whole world. Here's an example in Colossians chapter one, speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, that's Christ, for by Christ, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That language is language spoken of, of the thrones, dominions, authorities, and powers that are evil thrones, evil dominions, evil powers, the demons. He made the demons. So why do the demons say, you're the son of God? Because he's their creator. Our authorities, all things were created through him and all things, including you and I, were created for him. And he is before all things. And in him, 
all things hold together? How does he have the power to tell a fever of Peter's mother to leave? How does he have the power to raise a widow's son at Nain? How does he have the power to raise Lazarus from the dead? How does he have the power to cast out demons? Because he's God. In him, all things hold together. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, or the king's community. He is the head of the king's community. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dawn of the dead, that among him, in him, everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God, which means God, he's God, was pleased to dwell in through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We are a community. People that come to Jesus are a community that is centered around Jesus and his true identity, that he's the one we were made by and for, that he's the Lord of the entire universe because he made the entire universe, that he's the Lord of the current universe because he upholds it by his powerful word, that in him all things are holding together. Your body's holding together in Jesus. This building's holding together in Jesus. Our societies are holding together because of Jesus. In him all things consist. We center around him for who he truly is in all of his love, in all of his grace, and in all of his power. Now listen to this, because now he calls 12, and it says very specifically in verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he had called apostles so that they might be with him. Okay, I just want you to slow down a minute so we can really see the truth of Jesus here for a minute. This is the Jesus who puts himself in unbelievable harm's way to both demonstrate the power that he is the king of the world by healing people of their physical, mental, emotional, familial, and spiritual realities, healing them by breaking the power and canceling the curse of sin in being God in their life. All of that compassion, all of that love. He's also the God who created and made all things. Jesus is the God of the universe and he calls men and women to be with him. I had this moment very early in my ministry life where a guy said, hey, would you meet with this other guy who's your age? And I met with him, and, and he was a guy that had been around the church a little bit. Would have, his family would have called themselves Christians, but he had run like crazy. He was involved in addictions, and it involves in all kinds of things. He gets in one car accident, back gets busted up, starts getting kind of better, but his back's still, and he gets in another car accident. Neither of them his fault. And he's sitting there the whole time, and he can't, cannot figure it out, and he's still not surrendering to Jesus. And this comes at me just like that this thought in my head, and I looked at him and I said, do you realize that you are being pursued by the God of the universe? And I said, first, let's be really practical. If the God of the universe is pursuing you, you're not getting away. I said, secondly, how much does this God have to love you to pursue you while you're saying, I want nothing of you? This is Jesus calling men up a mountain and calling men, and then very soon future, men and women, to be with him. Redemption Gateway, listen to this. The God of the universe is calling us. 
He's calling you to be with him. He's drawing you to himself and he's saying, be with me, not momentarily, but permanently. He's reminding us of Colossians 1. You were made by and for me. Be with me. And he's the one who fundamentally recognizes at all of its depths level that the separator between you and the God you were made for is sin. And sin is the reason all of this disease, all of this mental anguish, sin is the reason all of this emotional, all of this historical baggage that you carry, that I carry, that our world carries, all of this division in the world is all there because of sin. And the Bible says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and to cancel the power and penalty of sin. He's the God that's called us to be with him. He's the God that says, center your whole community around me because he's the center of the entire universe. But here's where you need to understand that this ends, is it doesn't just end there. God never calls people radically to himself. He never transforms people radically, but to send them radically out. The community of the king is a drawn community, it's a centered community, and it is a sent community. Look at that in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain, and he called those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send. Everybody say that word. Send. On three. One, two, three. Send. So that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appoints the 12 and it names the 12. I'm going to teach you another word before we end. We did centripetal. Here's one called centrifugal. Here's the word. Centrifugal, which is a moving away from the center. Now the reality is nobody is drawn to the center of Jesus and gets oriented by God's power and by God's grace around him but to be radically sent out it's not an option if you come to Jesus you get sent by Jesus if you come to Jesus you get sent by Jesus baseball has just started again I love baseball I love it love it love it if you're sitting there going it's boring you have the problem I don't it's not boring it's an amazing sport. There's an amazing um, hitter in baseball right now. He now plays for the Seattle Mariners. His name's Nelson Cruz. Nelson Cruz hit 40 home runs last year. If you watch the playoffs, it was absurd how dominating he was. He came into this year. There was just recently an article written a couple days ago that said, say hey, baseball fan, Nelson Cruz is still hitting dingers, which means home runs. And it's, it's this centrifugal force. It's like, if something goes in to Nelson Cruz, it goes out. So last year during the playoffs, uh, Luke and I have a friend that's a really high up scout with uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. And I was talking to him on the phone during the playoffs and he had done advanced scouting, which means when the Dodgers were still in it, I don't know if Dale's here, still in it, they got out faster than they wanted, but neither here nor there. Um, when they were still in it, he would advance to the teams that they might play and he'd watch them. Well, then he had to go home and also watch the games on TV. So he was watching Nelson Cruz at one point where we you're talking that night on the phone and he's like, why do people still pitch to this guy? If you pitch to him, it goes in, then it goes out. It goes in and it will go out. That's Nelson Cruz. You should watch him, at least the highlights of him. It's unbelievable. That's Jesus, folks. If you go into him, you will get sent out from him, not shunned by him. You will be restored. 
There's a song that Matthew Brazelton used to sing years ago, and it said, to only my maker, my father, my savior, rebuilder, restorer, renewer, restorer, rebuilder, rewarder. If Jesus does that, to only my maker, my father, my savior, renewer, rebuilder, restorer, rewarder. If he's doing that, he's rebuilding, he's rewarding, he's restoring, he's renewing, whatever re word you wanna use. You come to him to get all of that. In him doing, while he's doing it, he doesn't even wait till it's completed. While he's doing it, he then goes, and you're going out. Before Jesus died upon a cross, he prayed a prayer to his father. Many people call it the high priestly prayer. And he prays this in John 17. He says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As you have sent me, so as I send them into the world. Then he dies upon a cross. He gets raised from the dead. He appears to the disciples. And look what he says to them in John 20, 21. Jesus says to the disciples, peace be with you. They needed that, right? Like they'd just seen their leader die. He's dead. But now they see him again. They're like, whoa, what's going on? And he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And in this room, if you're a Christian, he'd say, if you ever did this cheer in college, if you went to a big basketball school, they'd say, and you, and you, and you, and you. That's what he's saying right now. As the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. You are being sent into the world as the Father sent Christ. How did he send him? Well, he sent him in love. He sent him to be a restorer, a rebuilder. We are not the restorers, the rebuilders. We are ambassadors of this Jesus Christ saying to the world the very things he said about himself. And what did he say? He said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. So the church sits in everything we do and everything we say, and we say, this is the way, and we point to Jesus. He's the way. Therefore, we also say, all those other ways are not the way. He's the truth. Therefore, all these other things are not the truth. And they go, how can you dare say that? And then we say, do you want life? Because that's what every human being is on a quest for. We're after life that's worthy of the word, capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. If you want life, you've got to know the truth. You've got to know the way. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. The church, like Jesus, has a centripetal mission, meaning we are called to be a people that draw other people to ourselves because of the nature of how we live our lives. That in the midst of suffering, we know like Paul said in Romans chapter 5, we can rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance will produce character, and character produces hope, and hope will never put us to shame. And hope is what the world sees when it's hopeless and says, how, why? Service, Jesus came in this book, it says he came not to be served, but to serve. So if we're being sent into the world as he was sent into the world, we're sent into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives away in sacrificial service as his did. 
So when we're in a situation and people go, you're in a situation that's so bad right now, you should be served. How in the world are you also serving other people? And we say, Jesus. We have a centripetal mission that does work hardly before the Lord and not for men. And people go, why do you pursue it with such excellence? And we go, it's not to please the boss. It's not to please my spouse. It's not to please my kid. It's to please the Lord. And in so doing, I serve you. We also have a centrifugal motion, a centrifugal motion, centrifugal mission. Faith Hill got too much of me. Centrifugal mission to go places no one else would go, to cross barriers no one else would cross because we are sent into the world as Christ was. We go to pain. Their pain is our pain. We consider the needs of others is more significant than our own all because we are the king's community. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you. Um, We are drawn by you, Jesus, because of who you are. And God, we are amazed that you have called us to be with you. God, we tell you with everything that we have that apart from you, We can do nothing. But when we are with you, we will bear much fruit because of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.